right, welcome to Freightonomics, where we combine the freight market activity along with the macroeconomic environment, and hopefully you guys walk away here with more information and knowledge for your life and your existence. I'm Zach Strickland, Director of Freight Market Intelligence. He's Anthony Smith, Lead Economist here at FreightWaves. And Anthony, we have had, well, a week in September. Yeah. It's, it's now fall. It's now fall and everybody's getting ready for peak season mm -hmm. in the transportation industry. But what does peak season mean? Uh, this year, a big question mark for sure. And part of that big question mark has been on the rails because uh, the rails have not been able to operate as usual this year. Uh, so we're going to have Mike Bowden this on here in a little long bit. Long overdue. It's been too long. I know, right? He's going to give us a rail update. We're going to talk about the Kansas City merger, uh, Kansas City Railroad merger, among other things, uh, as well as the railroad capacity. But first off, I believe we have a sponsor to thank, Anthony. We do. We have a sponsor. And our sponsor is going to be Envision Global. And Envision Global is leading the global freight audit supply chain management services company, offering enterprise-wide supply chain solutions with over 4,000 global business partners, Envision Global not only provides prompt, accurate freight audit solutions, but also providing industry-leading supply chain information management solutions and services necessary to help its clients maximize efficiencies within their supply chain. To learn more, visit EnvisionGlobal.com. Envision Global. with a lowercase n. Trendy. Trending. Trendy. <laughs> Yeah, I uh, always love to thank them, and I'm sure they've got plenty of work uh, cut out for them right now, especially as global supply chains are struggling. Yeah. <laughs> we are still on the struggle bus, uh, if, in case anybody didn't know that already. Uh, you know, capacity shortages from Asia all the way to the final destination, final mile. A uh, big sector of that. Now, traditionally, I'm going to set the table a little bit for what we've got going on later uh, with, with Mike is... Typically this time of year, this is September, so you see a ton of long-haul freight moving through the United States. Uh, this is where the rail has its peak season, September through October, running into about November. Uh, you see a lot of long-haul freight volumes as well, and that kind of increases gradually as we approach November, um, as a lot of shippers are trying to reposition their freight closer to the consumer centers. Yeah. That's happening in mass already. <laughs> and part of the big disconnection of tradition here is that a lot of these, you know, since the rails don't have, well, it's not necessarily don't have capacity. There's among, there's a lot of other things going on, but they're, they're not able to get the freight transitioned onto the rails appropriately. So these shippers have to move the freight. And we talked about this earlier on Freightways Now. Uh, they have to move the freight out of the way. Yeah. Until they can get some sort of long haul capacity going on. And that has created a large amount of disruption uh, here in the near term. And it looks like it's going to persist throughout the rest of the year, Anthony. Yeah, and that's one of the big things is when I was talking to, chatting with Andrew Cox and the coin, the phrase he coined is the peakiest of all peak seasons. And we've kind of, <laughs> it's like we've already kind of been hovering at that high because it's not much higher we can go. And so really thinking, how long can this persist? And we had a really good conversation, I think, before the show talking about what is needed to really like keep the supply chain moving. And the point you made, demand has to subside sometime, like a, a bit for yeah, this I, all to kind of smooth out. I think, I think that's the easiest solution here is that demand just eases. Yeah. Um, I think that's the fastest possibility uh, at this point. I mean, you're talking about people trying to add trucks. They can't do that quickly because they can't build the trucks. Yeah. They, they can't get the parts for the trucks and they, they don't have the labor for the trucks. 
and then they don't have the labor to seat the trucks. Yeah. This is like, you don't build infrastructure overnight. You don't add capacity overnight. This is something that comes on slowly and gradually. And in a normal year, it takes about a year for things to catch up. Now, we're not in a normal year. Yeah. <laughs> we haven't been in a normal year for some time now. Uh, so I think the more likely answer, and it obviously depends on a lot of people's expectations, is we're going to see demand kind of slough off here at the beginning of 2022, maybe. Uh, but last year, we thought the same thing was happening. It did happen last mm-hmm. year to an extent. And I think people were taking a deep breath, thinking, okay, we're going to return back. Pandemic's going to ease. We're all going to go back to normal the way things were. And here comes a winter freeze and COVID's still around and all sorts of other things. Uh, and then, you know, everybody hits the panic buy button yeah. once again. And here we are. And I think that that's, I think eventually we're going to see some sort of gradual decline. We're not seeing it right now. Outbound tender volumes are as high as they've ever been. Um, and we don't, there's no reason for them to slough off throughout the rest of this year. Uh, so I think when Andrew says peakiest of peak seasons, I mean, we're, we're, there's just no data point that says, hey, things are going to ease up yeah. in the next three months. Like, you, if you are thinking that's going to happen, good luck. <laughs> yeah. And the other big thing that I was chatting with Michael Benson about is the backlogs of everything. So we look at manufacturing and other uh, segments across the board. There's such a backlog building up. So even when demand subsides, there's going to be so much left in the gas tank of, hey, we got to play catch up on all these orders that came through right. that we couldn't get to. Or some of the stuff that maybe were was a little bit inconvenient to kind of work through, and we just kind of put it on the back burner. Right. We got to work through all the inconvenient stuff. So I think there's a lot of activity down the line, even after demand kind of subsides a little bit. Yeah, the economic activity right now is going gangbusters. Yeah. Uh, and and I think this is not something that we haven't seen before. Uh, we just haven't seen it for these reasons, and I think we're seeing it at a little bit of a compressed uh, timeline here because we're. You know, when we talk about economic growth and expansion, it's really driven by, you know, technology and changes of lifestyle or society. And, you know, some of the things that we've seen historically, at least, I guess I'll just talk about what I've seen in my lifetime, the computer, PCs, that drove tons of economic growth in the 90s. Uh, and it changed the way people did business. It changed the way people lived their lives. Then we had the smartphones that really drove a lot of change in the way that people, again, did business, lived their lives, societal, cultural, different uh, changes, uh, new investments uh, coming around. And that's what fuels economic growth, is yeah. these leaps in societal uh, infrastructure, if you will. And right now we're seeing such a dramatic shift and change that's been accelerated by COVID. Um <laughs> Now, we're going to have an extended period of growth, economic mm-hmm. growth. It'll, it'll eventually ease out. And that, this is the question I'm going to pose to you before we, we move forward is, how long does this cycle last, Anthony mm-hmm. Smith, economically speaking? Yeah. Not the freight cycle, uh, but the economic cycle. So it's only going to last as long as consumers can pay for it. And, and that's going to be the thing. And so when I always say the fourth quarter is really going to put the endurance for the consumer to test, that's what it is. Because we've had those bonus benefits expire. We have stimulus packages, money starting to kind of dry up a bit. Still, savings rates are, are significantly high, but savings rates starting to come down. So looking at that is going to tell us what kind of stamina these consumers have. Are they going back to work? Because the unemployment, the initial jobs claims number just ticked up for the second week straight. Nothing too concerning because it's a volatile week-by-week week number. But looking at the consumer condition, it's going to tell us 
how long this can really persist. So if people get back to work and they keep kind of bringing that income in and those buying habits sustain, that's going to extend this out for some time. And so I think that's what we're going to really look at closely. And because of that, the other big thing, there's all these underlying trends. And right. that's what I really kind of get fascinated about is those underlying trends. And so looking at some of those consumer trends, how's their credit going? Do they have a lot of revolving credit? Do they have a lot of non-revolving credit? Um, did but didn't they, people come out of this saving more money than they spent? They saved more money than they spent. But yeah. now the thing is, non-revolving credit like um, mortgages after all this crazy housing uh, fiasco that's going on right Interest now. Interest rates are really low. Interest rates are really low. But now they're getting into these these big house payments that right. maybe they can or they, they, I think they're in good shape for. Okay. And so, um, but used car prices was another one, a certain subsector of of people kind of paying for, a little bit inflated. Um, Another thing that people are gonna have to watch out for, I think it's gonna come around maybe a year, year, maybe two years from now, Mm -hmm. three years maybe, but those buy now, pay later um, uh, positions where you can go to Amazon, oh, this is $2.99, but I can break it down into five easy payments or six easy payments, whatever it might be, interest-free, but if you start missing those payments, can kind of come back to bite you. So pay it off every month. Yeah. And so pay it off. Um, (laughs) Those are the kind of things I'm going to be watching for as underlying trends, because those are going to be the slow burners to kind of really creep up and kind of, you know, it's like, oh, I'll get Disney Plus. I'll get Hulu. Oh, I'll get Netflix. Next thing you know, you're paying two or $300 per month in subscriptions because cable was too expensive and (laughs) inconvenient. So that's, it kind of starts to creep up. And I think those buy now, pay later can kind of start to creep up on some consumers if they're not too careful. Automatic payments, man. They always get me too. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Always check, check through your Amazon uh, or your, and your Apple stuff to make sure you're not overly subscribed to something you thought you, you went away from. So Let's hit up the top stories of the week real quick before we move into Mike Bowden Distal, because I think these kind of somewhat set the table for him in a sense. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, I think, you know, it's been kind of a slow news month in general, but these are the ones that stuck out to us. So, Newsonomics, uh, let's kick it off. So, the first uh, news story of the day is, or it's, it's not really the day, it's the kind of the week. Uh, Mark Solomon writes about how. Uh, FedEx bottom line strains under the cost pressure. So <clears throat> I think we're all kind of experiencing this environment and we think, oh, the carriers are just flush with cash and things are going to grow. They're, if you report a loss, you know, then you shouldn't be in the business, et cetera, uh, because there's just so much activity in this space. And so, again, this is a FedEx reporting themselves, basically mitigating investor expectations, if you will, which is always a constant thing that you do when you're in the corporate world. Um, but I think it is an important thing to note that they had an additional $450 million <laughs> incurred year over year in their costs versus last year. This is not necessarily a bad thing. This is what you want a company like FedEx to do. They're basically uh, $320 million of it uh, was incurred as FedEx ground expanded. So these are expansions to their infrastructure. Think about it as expansions to capacity. Obviously, FedEx ground is heavily involved in parcel Uh, totally involved in partial, if not some of that final mile as well. So cost burdens are still a thing for carriers. Uh, As you're expecting them to grow, you know, this is a good thing for you if you're a shipper, uh, but it doesn't necessarily mean that all that money just goes straight to a profit margin. Got you, got you. So that's the other thing is 
doesn't all just straight go to profit. No. Okay. All right. <laughs> no. It's a good takeaway because when you see these numbers come in, that's the first thing I think mm-hmm. comes to mind is, oh, they're loaded. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they got plenty of money coming in. I'm not trying to say there's a sob story here for FedEx, you know, <laughs> but it's it's still like you you they're going to grow. They have to grow. Mm-hmm. They don't want to sit on cash. Businesses are encouraged to invest just like we as uh, people are by the tax uh, situation. So, um, but again, just to think that they're all just kind of pocketing all this money for, no, they're, they're, they're trying to grow. And the big question years down the road is, will this investment still be necessary? Yeah. You yeah. know, and that's the big risk as a business uh, you've got to think through. So yeah. next one. Thing. Huh? I forgot to mention. Oh. If you see me looking down, I'm checking LinkedIn. So if you want to get j- jump into the conversation, get in that LinkedIn chat as well. I see Danny Marciani saying happy Thursday, y'all. So if you have any questions throughout the show, we have Mike Bonsall coming up. Ask him a question. You can't right. stump the guy. I'm telling you. So He's got I'm watching. All. He's got it all down. Uh, here's one that I'm going to actually somewhat ask him coming up uh, or his thoughts on the rail side of this. This is the carrier side. Um, 5% may not be enough for truckload rate increases in 2022. Uh, Todd Maiden wrote this one. Uh, basically interviews a few of the CEOs of some of the larger truckload uh, providers in the United States saying, basically setting the table, and this is, again, not something unusual. Normally, we talk about a 3 to 5% rate increase every year. And that's, that's kind of a generic kind of inflationary number that a lot of carriers will throw out there to say, hey, inflationary pressure, we've got to increase, our costs are going up, et cetera, yada, yada, yada. That is absolutely fact this year. Um, but they're basically setting the table that into 2022, we're going to see 5% to start, and then it may go up again, which a, a, you're talking about added inflationary pressures increase. Uh, rates increased uh, roughly 8 to 15% this year in a lot of cases, if not more, uh, you know, in some areas for sure. Spot rates are way over where they were this time last year, especially all in because fuel prices increased. Um, so to think about another year of rate increases for transportation I mean, it's like, what do you do? Yeah. Like, I mean, as a shipper, you, you can't get the capacity and you have to move the freight. 20% of your loads right now, 22% of them getting rejected. Mm-hmm. That is such an inefficient model. So you, you're forced to bid it up to get your goods moved. Yeah. And so one of the reasons why on an economic level, when I look at the CPI and the PPI, look at those consumer prices and those producer prices, one of the big things that we have to take note of is during times of recession, Producers usually take on those price increases because you got to look at the, the elasticity mm-hmm. of your, your good. Are people going to jump ship because, hey, times are, t- are bad and I'll take on these price increases so I don't lose market share. Now that we're kind of, we're well out of the recession, pandemic's still going, but yeah. there's no incentive for a lot of these producers to maintain these price increases in-house. They don't have to eat them all. And right. so we're seeing those prices be passed forward to the consumer. And I think it's going to be passed Eventually. forward in a meaningful way. <laughs> and it only takes one really yeah. to like really significantly increase their pricing right. in a crazy way for a lot of other producers like saying, you know what? Yeah, I'm going through it as well. I got to pass on this additional cost as well. Or maybe, you know, free overnight shipping isn't free overnight shipping anymore. Maybe there's an added cost for shipping and things like that. So all these things have to go into consideration. Oh, you hide it down in the bottom line. You don't yeah. see it. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of like the advent of the, uh, the debit card. Mm-hmm. Kind of like it, it doesn't feel as real when you're spending it yeah. uh, through the debit card. Now it's on the you know, 
Amazon has its buy now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, ah, I never see it. It's like, it's like yeah. you're, you're just playing with money now. You don't even have it. Play money, fake money. Play money, it's Monopoly. <laughs> uh, last one, this is my chart of the week this week uh, because this is where I was going with this, with setting the table for Mike Bowden to come on here in just a second. Uh, Carriers head west for a modern day gold rush of freight. And the point of this article is simply to point out that there is way more freight moving from west to east than going from east to west. And railroad is far more efficient at repositioning <laughs> Uh, in, historically speaking, than trucks are uh, yeah. in terms of going from coast to coast. And that's why you see uh, far cheaper rates on the rail traditionally going from Los Angeles to Chicago. And then, you know, it may get off the train there and get dispersed out. The biggest uh, railhead conglomerate up there in the Midwest, for sure. Um, and there's only so much freight moving back west. Like, there's definitely not enough freight coming back west, and that's going to continue to push the market out of balance. Even if capacity, or if we say that demand eases, there's still going to be this imbalance that's always kind of persistent. And if the rails, you know, I guess this is where the rails would potentially come in as they, you know, cleared some of that congestion, and they could start to move that freight uh, versus getting it on the truck, which is what's happening right now. Yeah. So, we bring on... I think we bring on... Man of the hour... Mike Bowdenistel to ask him some of these questions and see what he's got going on. Mike, thanks so much for joining us. Long overdue. Happy to have you on. How are you doing? Great. Good to see you guys. Mike, I I, I got to kick things off. I got a, I got a chart here. You've seen the chart. Um, so let's just get it rolling. Uh, the, you know, the rail volumes show a decline in our outbound rail, our loaded rail volume index that we have in Sonar. And I got a little line there drawn. 11%, over 11% drop year over year, yet it, it doesn't make, like, I think to the outside observer, it doesn't make a lick of sense that we see declining rail volumes. What, what do you make of this chart, and can you kind of put some context around it for our viewers? Sure. So there's no lack of demand, uh, let me put it that way. Um, and, and I think that's why there's a disconnect with, between that and, and other uh, data sets. There's plenty of, of demand, um, but the issue has been that there's been all these capacity constraints, which you know we went through in a, quite a lot of detail in our intermodal um, summit uh, the other week. Um, you know, some of those are like the the chassis shortage. Union Pacific described the chassis shortage as being sort of the ultimate constraint in 2021. And John Kingston did an interview with an attorney who was involved in the anti-dumping case. If you want to know the you know the all the detail behind why. There's a chassis shortage, um, and Norfolk Southern had some issues with uh, the manufacturing defect that it had to get repaired on, on their chassis, which, you know, that's pretty much through. But, um, you know, that was just one of many uh, capacity constraints. I mean, some of these other capacity constraints are, are really a lot, um, you know, in and around the ports, um, you know, in and around the intermodal terminals. You know, there's been a shortage of drayage capacity. And so what's happened is there's been containers that have been piled up at the intermodal terminals, and you haven't had the drayman uh, to take those containers, uh, you know, out of the terminal in order to free up additional space, and so they've had to, you know, meter and, and reduce the number of containers they brought into to places like Chicago. So there's been issues there, and then that uh, freight imbalance that you were just talking to uh, that was it really leads to a reduction in the container turns, and so all these assets are being utilized less productively. Um, you know, of course, that's a big issue in the ocean side too. So as you as you utilize, you know, assets less productively, then um, you know that takes a lot of capacity out of the system. 
And the imports coming into the U.S., uh, you know, really have been at an elevated level, you know, all year, particularly this sort of spring, uh, early summer, and the intermodal network got congested and it just never, never caught up and never really had a chance to, to catch up because there was some kind of demand breather. And it's almost like what Anthony was talking about earlier is, is you know, at, at some point, the consumers are less willing and able to spend money. That's kind of what the intermodal network needs. It kind of needs a breather in order to get get caught up. But um, but but really that drop in volume and that chart that you show really is pretty widespread across uh, both international intermodal volume and in in those 40-foot and 20-foot containers and also the domestic intermodal volume in 53-foot containers. So it really hasn't been limited to one um, you know, sector of the industry or, or, or one lane. It's It's been pretty widespread and, and, and the rails have taken some measures to try to try to address this. They uh, have opened up some uh, intermodal uh, facilities that had been closed. Uh, Norfolk Southern did that in uh, Pennsylvania, and then uh, Burlington Northern did that in Arkansas and the Memphis uh, area. So they're taking you know, more containers into those facilities to take some pressure off of their sort of primary uh, terminals. And then they've also um, you know leased out some, some more you know warehousing space and just you know just places to put, you know, containers. So they're, they're trying to take, you know, some measures, but it is a difficult situation for, for shippers. So Mike, when you're talking about this additional space kind of being taken up and, you know, this capacity crunch that we're going through, are you also seeing in some of the things that you're hearing or, or watching or analyzing an exponential price point for each incremental amount of warehouse space or volume? Yeah, and certainly the, the, the warehouse in space is, is, is very short. I mean, in, in some of those cases when I'm talking about, I mean, in some locations, you, you can't find sort of adjacent space in order to store, you know, containers. In some cases, you, you can't. Um, but, uh, I mean, certainly the, the prices are, are rising uh, sharply, um, as you would expect. I mean, we, you know, have intermodal spot rates in uh, sonar, and you've seen, you know, about five or six weeks ago, a lot of those just really shot way up. Now, not a lot of Intermodal moves on the spot market. It's it's a pretty small uh, minority, but that still is an indicator that uh, there's rails are seeing something that's not uh, quite right. They're they're worried about you know protecting capacity for the the shippers that are that are using contracts. So you're seeing a an increase, um, you know there. Um, you know the last time the intermodal spot rates rolled over, they were up uh, you know really kind of double digits. I mean a lot of those uh, rates roll over in the second quarter, um, and then when you add to to that, the accessorial charges, what we've heard from shippers is intermodal really doesn't save you a lot of money once you take into account these charges for detention and demurrage and sort of the all-in price. You know, you're not really saving any anything f- using intermodal versus truckload. And of course, there's a, there's a service hit there using intermodal. So that's really, you know, creating less incentive for shippers to use intermodal, which also goes into, you know, your chart, Zach, of, of showing volumes that have declined. Yeah, so so you think that there's going to be you know some sort of long term impact here? I mean, we're we're going into the peak season for ra- we're in the middle of peak season for rails traditionally, and volumes are down 11. percent Do you think that this is going to have some sort of long term impact in terms of the overall uh, profitability of the rails or even customer attrition? I think it's going to lead to customers having more you know sort of contingency plans in place. I mean, one thing we've seen over the last year is um, you know really a lot of these big shippers just want to get their products, you know, imported into the U.S. And even if it's not at their preferred port, you know, just get it into the U.S. We'll figure out the domestic logistics after that, just because ocean shipping has has been so constrained. And, and so I think you're going to see, 
more sort of, you know, contingency, you know, in, contingency measures in place, either, you know, diversification of different ports or even different modes and sort of this, this recognition that, you know, even if you usually you move containers from LA to Dallas or LA to Chicago, you can't always count on the rail, you know, capacity, you know, you know being there. Um, I mean, the rail from the rail perspective, you know, the intermodal is not one of the more profitable segments. It's kind of in the middle at, at, at best, uh, but it has been an avenue for, for growth. And I think, you know, this sort of calls that into question and, and really last few years have sort of called that into, into question, whether intermodal is still sort of a growth area, or maybe it's just something that sort of grows with, with GDP. So Mike, when we're looking at this, can you put a little bit of uh, expectations on a timeline basis as well? So your expectations, um, maybe the first part of 2022 or any expectations um, of alleviation going into the mid part of the of next year? Yeah, I mean, certainly the, the, the imports still at a high level. I mean, they were sort of pulled forward to a certain extent. Um, so, but in terms of getting the whole, you know, intermodal system cleaned up, I mean, I think you're going to have issues at least through the end of this year. I mean, when you get sort of past the new year, you do get into a time when there's, tr- you know, traditionally a slower time in January and February for uh, just freight movements. And then, you know, if you did have a traditional sort of Chinese New Year middle of February, that usually gives the industry a chance to just get caught up. And we don't observe that observe, observe that here. They work every day, but that just gives sort of gives the U.S. a chance to um, you have the network sort of cleaned up. So I think you are looking at sort of um, mid one Q. Yeah. So, you know, we were talking, I, I know earlier in the year, we were hearing all about rate increases uh, for intermodal and the rails. They were having peak season surcharges. Are we seeing any of that right now? Or is that kind of gone by the wayside since they're having so much trouble with the uh, the capacity? Yeah. So, you know, earlier in the year when uh, the intermodal company, domestic intermodal companies, you know, companies like Hub Group and JB Hunt, you know, talked about, you know, what they were expecting for 2021, they were talking about sort of contract rate increases and sort of the mid to high single digits. And for the most part, they, you know, ended up exceeding that. And a lot of those rate increases were, you know, double digit, you know, rate increases, you know, overall on, on, on renewals, which really, you know, speaks to, you know, how tight the capacity is. You know, going forward, I think it's going to be hard to have another sort of double digit increase on top of that last double digit increase, um, you know, with, you know, where service levels and, and, and everything that's happened, you know, this year, um, you know, you know, a lot of the intermodal contracts tend to roll over, you know, kind of early in the year. I mean, so some start to, to, to roll over sort of in the, in the fourth quarter into the first and second quarter. Um, right now, it's a little bit of a slower time frame, but I wouldn't expect the same rate of increase that you just saw in uh, for 2021. And so I think we also, Zach, had a pretty big, talking about intermodal rail, a pretty big story come out not too long ago about an acquisition. Wasn't, wasn't small. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it wasn't small. Uh, it was the Kansas City uh, Canadian Pacific merger announcement. Now, uh, you know, I kind of I like watching these because of the drama involved yeah. with some of these stories. But the, this, one, this one fascinated me because it kind of hit me out of nowhere uh, that, all of a sudden, Canadian National, who put in the bid, it looked like they were the, the leader uh, because their, their amount was higher than Canadian Pacific to buy Kansas City uh, rail, Railroad. And that would connect North America from uh, Canada to, uh, to Mexico. Uh, and, and it would be a pretty big uh, corridor for a single company to hold north to south. And, of course, the regulatory boards get involved and they need to make sure that they're not eliminating competition. There's not like a monopoly in certain areas that makes it more difficult for, you know, 
shippers to have some sort of price control in some area. Tell us what happened here, Mike. Like this, this feels like a last second, like, oh, just kidding. This didn't happen. Uh, maybe it was just me not watching it, but but give a little color and context to what's going on here with the uh, with this merger deal. Sure. So, uh, you know, CP, um, you know, got a deal approved with uh, Kansas City Southern, you know, back in um, you know, May. Uh, and, then, and then CN uh, sort of outbid them. Um, and, uh, you know, what happened there was that the Surface Transportation Board, which is the main sort of executive, um, you know, group that regulates the railroads, did not uh, approve uh, and, and rejected unanimously as a certain um, you know, part of that deal, which was the voting trust. Now, what the voting trust would have done would have given Canadian national control over Kansas City Southern before the deal sort of was formally you know, closed and, and all the sort of mitigation measures that you know, were required you know, would, would go into place. Um, it would have given uh, you know, CN control over Kansas City Southern you know, right away. Um, the Service Transportation Board rejected that, saying that it did not; it was not in the public's best interest. And um, you know, the, the threshold for for most uh, you know mergers these days is very high, based on rules that were rewritten in, in 2021. You basically have to demonstrate that uh, business combination is in the public's you know interest, um, and that it actually improves competition. It can't just be a neutral uh, for competition. So that's a, that's a high bar to set. You know, assuming that uh, Canadian National would have had to abide by those uh, rules, um, and and that decision came after the Service Transportation Board, um, you know, a- allowed CP to use a similar voting trust, um, you know, back in you know May June uh, timeframe, um, and and so then all of a sudden it sort of you know created a, a situation where okay the the fears were realized that it is going to be much much harder to get you know, C, a CN, a Kansas City Southern uh, deal approved versus a CP, Kansas City Southern deal approved. The CP and Kansas City Southern really don't have any network overlap, um, you know, really at all. And, and you can make the argument, well, this is actually a good thing for shippers because it extends the shippers reach into new markets. Yeah, I mean, it, I guess that makes sense to an extent, but didn't they only have like, didn't Canadian National only have like an 80 mile stretch or something where they overlap with uh, KCS? That right? I mean, that, that directly overlaps. Um, but the, the thing is with Canadian National, I mean, their network is shaped like a T. So it goes from the west coast of Canada to the, to the east coast of Canada and then goes down um, north, south, <clears throat> you know, along the Mississippi River, uh, which used to be part of the Illinois Central. So it goes all the way down to New Orleans. Um, and so that north, uh, south part, you know, is somewhat, uh, you know, overlapping. You know, you can, you can make the argument that it overlaps with Kansas City Southern. Uh, north-south, you know, network. Even though Kansas City Southern is further west, it only goes as far north as as, as Kansas City. So you are talking about, um, you know, different location of where the that railroad track lies. But you know, it does create uh, maybe eliminates a competitor on the on north-south between, let's say, the Gulf Coast and the and the Midwest. But wouldn't this? I mean, to me, this looks like the consummate automotive network map <laughs> in terms of automotive parts. Uh, moving north and south, like is this is this the primary commodity you see kind of influenced here? If you're a, in the automotive industry, I, I think it's one of many. Actually, I mean, certainly with automotive, you have um, you know the, the fastest growing place to, to build motor vehicles is Mexico, and so you you know the railroads do move a lot of auto parts from the U.S. to Mexico, and a lot of finished vehicles back from Mexico to the U.S. for for U.S. consumption. So. You know, this maybe opens it up more where it's easier to move rail parts uh, or, or auto parts from 
Detroit or Eastern Canada to uh, Mexico. Um, so, and, and then move finished vehicles further in the network. So certainly that's, that's, that's one of them, but I don't think it's, it's the only, um, you know, potential uh, change to, um, to, to, to rail shippers. I mean, you think about something like grain where, uh, a lot of what Kansas city Southern does is move agriculture from the U S Midwest southbound to Mexico. Um, you know, all of a sudden with a, la- a larger reach, I mean, maybe now those, those same farmers, you know, for the right price could move it all the way you know, north uh, and then, you know, west to, to the port of Vancouver and sell into the Chinese markets, which, you know, sometimes they, you know, demand a tremendous amount of, of grain. Uh, so, you know, that's one, you know, potential change in, in, uh, is, is in agriculture. Um, then you also think about things like, you know, uh, you know petroleum, uh, chemicals, uh, Canadian Pacific does a lot in, you know, the Alberta oil sands and they move a lot of crude by rail um, in you know, Bakken formation and sort of the, the, the upper Midwest. Um, you know, now you're connected to Kansas City Southern, which, uh, you know, is, is right on the sort of the Gulf Coast there. So, you know, I think there's a, just a, there's a lot of uh, situations where you could extend, you know, customers reach, you know, make it a little bit more seamless. Um, and then on the intermodal side, this Chicago to um, Dallas corridor uh, really sort of punches below its weight class, given how large those markets are for intermodal. Um, and now if you have, you know, under one corporate umbrella, you know, company that could invest both north of Kansas City and south of Kansas City, make that a, a denser you know, corridor with the proper investments, um, you know, I think they could take trucks off the road in that corridor. You make a, an incredible point there. Chicago, or Dallas to Chicago, Chicago to Dallas, one of the biggest corridors for freight in the United States. Uh, we used to always talk about controlling that lane there as much as possible, but the prices were, you know, you, you had to be very price competitive in that lane. So that's, that's definitely something. Do you see that being, uh, you know, something that we're going to see? I mean, you just said it may pull trucks off the road to an extent, but do you think the price competition there, we're going to start to see even more of it in that lane as uh, if this actually comes to pass? Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I think, you know, you know, as a deal, you know, clo- after the deal closes I, and, and, you know, I think you'll see more investment there. I think you'll, you'll see a bigger push in intermodal, um, you know, moving the, the volume north, south. I mean, really intermodal volume primarily is east, west, you know, as it stands today. So, um, you know, on, on the truckload side of things, I mean, that's a, a full sort of two day trip. I mean, I think there's a lot of customers that would be you know, happy to save 10 to 15% to use intermodal net corridor if it takes them three days instead of two days. I think that's, that's a trade-off a lot of, of customers would, would make. Um, and then the other you know, potential on the intermodal side would maybe be moving more volume from the port of uh, you know, Lazaro Cardenas on the west coast of Mexico uh, to, to points uh, you know, north to a lot of these, uh, you know, Midwest and, and, and even Eastern consumption centers. And um, it could lead to growth of imports, you know, through the that, that Mexican, you know, port, can, you know, especially considering the cost of doing business and congestion in Southern California is, uh, is often so bad. So, Mike, one of the things I was chatting with and our executive publisher, Kevin Hill, was talking about all of the recent acquisitions, some of the mergers, a lot of the, the valuations really happening right now because when freight is hot, it tends to really drive up valuation. Can you talk about some of the valuation CN was seeing uh, throughout this merger? Yeah, I mean, the, the stock market's at an incredible level. Um, you know, certainly that's you know, particularly true for some of the higher quality transportation names. Um, you think about companies like, like Old Dominion, just kind of amazing uh, you know, valuation there. I mean, the valuation of this deal 
was really eye-popping. I mean, that that bid from CN, which of course um, you know, wasn't approved and they've walked away from it. That was you know, like, like 27 times next year's you know, earnings. If you look at you know the consensus earnings and CN was trading at like 20 times earnings. And, and those are just incredible you know, multiples, these, these 20 plus you know, times uh, earnings multiples for railroads. I mean, you historically would think of those as being you know, low double digits, I'm, I'm, you know, really sort of 10 to 14 times. And they've sort of creeped up gradually over the last several years. And they've gone from sort of, you know, low double digits to sort of low teens, sort of high teens, and now in the 20% range. And and, and it's, it's really unusual relative to history for the rail industry, because the rail industry is extremely, uh, you know, capital intensive. Do you think that that, I mean, do you think that that valuation was, was worth it? I mean, it sounds like you kind of doubt that there's a reason other than just having a hot market for investment. Uh, do you think that they, they would have actually seen return on that? I think it's too soon to know. I think if, um, you know, you really do have a lot of sort of revenue synergies there, which is, is, is the way that they have sort of sold the deal, um, you know, then, you know, you know, expanding customers reach. I mean, you could have be moving more products on the railroads that you would normally not be able to move, you know, on, on, on the railroad. So, um, you know, I think it would take a number of years to, to, to get there. I mean, you, you did see that, you know, CN's, um, you know, stock price, you know, rise as a result of them, you know, walking away from the deal. So at least, you know, it's really due to the, the initial dilution. So it did seem like some of those big, you know, shareholders uh, of, of CN did not like the deal. I mean, not, not the least of which was uh, their, their activist uh, shareholder, um, you know, TCI, um, which is now pushing for, New CEO, new chairman of the board, new board members, um, you know, et cetera. Wow. Speaking of drama. Um, <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the, to me, this almost felt like the rails had, I mean, they, they're kind of, it's a kind of a stagnant place, right? Like there's not as, there's not a lot of volatility there. The infrastructure is relatively stable, but they have these consistent ORs in the fifties and sixties. That just, that to me screams like I got a ton of cash and I don't know what to do with it. Do you think that had some of the influence here and like how they were trying to think about growing and expanding? Yeah, I mean, I think maybe, you know, you look at, at both of those, those management teams and, um, you know, sometimes you have a management team that, that wants to sort of leave its stamp on the, the industry and, and, and sort of the, for, you know, sort of for all time. And you've seen that in, in, in past, um, you know, mergers and things, uh, you know, and, and the Canadian rails sort of specifically have been the rails that have you know, been the most aggressive in going after um, incremental volume and, and, you know, either trying to take off, take, take trucks off the road or, you know, trying to grow with their customers at rates above GDP. That's not something we've seen a lot of from the U.S. rails that uh, have been maybe more focused on the operating ratio. And, um, you know, I do wonder whether this new plan that Canadian National announced in order to try to preserve the current management team under the activist pressures maybe spells an end to that 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 volume growth strategy where they just laid out you know they're, they're planning to get you know quickly to 57 you know or and they're going to eliminate a lot of positions you know a lot of management and operational uh, positions um, you know reduce the capex all of those things sort of a little bit of a, a, a slash and burn of, of of the cost structure you know even further. Um, you know, under the activist pressure. So, um, you know, I do wonder if, if we're sort of back to the era of how, how low can you go in the, in the operating ratio. Now, tell me a little bit about the activist investor's role here and why, why they care so much about how Canadian national grows or doesn't grow. Like, what is, what's the story there? 
Yeah, so they bought a huge position in the in the shares. Um, I believe they're the second largest, you know, shareholder after the the, the Cascade uh, Group that um, is, is basically Bill Gates's money. So the second largest shareholder. You know what, what happens with some of these activists is they they look at the, the this particular industry. We've seen this in the rail industry a few times, including from this a specific activist. Um, you know when when they were involved in CSX some years ago, and they, they look at the one that they you know view as as being underperforming either because they've seen less um, you know, earning, uh, uh, stock price appreciation or less margin improvement or less earnings growth or a combination of those things. And they say, well, you know, if we really sort of tr- change out the management team and the board and we sort of you know, change the priorities, then this investment uh, that we just made will no longer be you know, undervalued. And, and, and we've seen this you know, a few times uh, in, the, in the rail industry that, that, that worked to you know, tremendous, you know, extent, um, you know, installing, you know, Hunter Harrison at the Canadian you know, Pacific um, and then doing that again at, at, at CSX. I mean, now this activist fund wants to get uh, Jim, Jim Venna to, to lead a Canadian national. You know, he was uh, um, one of the primary, um, you know, operating uh, professionals in the, um, on, on, that, on that railway um, you know, some years ago, who then went to Union Pacific. Um, and then as soon as he went to Union Pacific, that stock price, you know, shot up. So someone who the stock, uh, you know, investment community has a tremendous amount of, uh, uh, confidence in. And so Mike, when we're looking at this, what can our expectations be as this deal moves through its different processes? I mean, of course, the merger is going to, you know, take some time. What are we looking at in terms of timeline for that? So they still say they're hoping to close late 2022. I mean, those those things do take some time. I mean, CP is going to submit this formal application, um, I believe, you know, next uh, month. And, you know, the, the Mexican regulators have to approve this as as well. Um, the expectation is they, is, is they are going to approve. Um, and then the Surface Transportation Board, um, you know, may have required certain sort of mitigation measures. I and mean, sometimes when you see business combinations, you know, you, like you saw with Canadian National acquired the EJ&E, they had to have all these mitigation measures, um, you know, things like, you know, you know grade crossings, overpasses, all, all of these things. So, so you may see some of that as well. But, um, you know, it should be, you know, fairly uh, you know, soon before CP takes control of the, the Kansas City Southern, you know, because the, the voting trust has already been approved. Um, and then, you know, who knows how long the, 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 the Canadian National activist situation could uh, could take. I mean, it could be something that's that's really quick. It could go to a proxy fight, um, but you could have a management uh, change there. Good grief! I mean, you said end of twenty twenty two. I mean, it, it's not like and, and and I mean, I'm saying this somewhat facetiously, but it's not like there's that much more we can learn about these two entities, right? I mean, their <laughs> the, their infrastructure has been relatively stable, and like it's not like there's a lot of unknowns or discovery. Uh, sitting around here, it's just it, bo- it boggles the mind that this process takes so long, and it's all. I I feel like there's a lot of other people making money in this process uh, that want to keep this thing ongoing, or is this just the nature of how these mergers are? Like, what are they trying to prevent? I guess. Yeah. yeah. So what they're trying to prevent is a further reduction in competition because the rail industry is very concentrated. I mean, a lot of shippers only have, um, you know, one railroad or, or two railroads. They don't want a situation where, you know, certain shippers, you know, used to have, you know, two railroads and they could kind of play one off each other um, on, on rates. And now they're captive to one shipper and the, uh, one railroad, and that one railroad can charge whatever they feel like. That's what they're trying to avoid. And they, they want to, you know, make sure that, you know, they're not, you know, further eliminating competition in, in an already very concentrated industry, uh, basically. Yeah. So, 
So I want to I want to backtrack a little bit because I forgot to bring this up, and you know, to the intermodals side of things. So I have a chart here, uh, and the way that I want to posit this is this is this is our contract rates for truckload, and it compares the contract rates to intermodal. Um, so these are the long-term rates. And again, the truckload market has been a lot more volatile uh, in terms of pricing uh, versus intermodal, uh, controlled a lot by spot market, uh, you know, action, which has been extremely uh, hot over the last several months. So the chart I'm going to bring up here is our intermodal cost savings index compared to uh, the van contract rate and the intermodal contract rate. And the green line there is the difference between the two. And you can see that you know, starting about March or so, these two values are diverging significantly. And it's largely due to the fact that the intermodal contract rates just aren't budging. Now, is this something you would expect? I mean, this is a 16% difference. Uh, is the market dictating any of this? Or is this just the rails holding firm to traditional concepts? Yeah, so I think it's a few things there. I mean, you, you sort of look at, you know, what that spread has been over the last year or so. And, and, and you look at the left side of that chart in green, it's less than 10%. You look on the right side of that chart, it's 17. You know, historically, the discount would be sort of 10 to 15% in that range, maybe shaded a little bit more to 10%. So, you, you know, at, as a starting point, you know, the savings rate for intermodal is a little bit high based on based on that data. Now, some of that is due to timing. So, um, you know, really uh, a lot of the intermodal contracts will get renegotiated in first quarter into the second quarter. And so that's why I think you see that big drop. If you look on, on the left side of that chart from December, it was 17%, right. went from 17% to 13%. I think that's a lot of intermodal contracts getting renegotiated. And uh, intermodal contracts um, would maybe move um, not quite as, as as quick as the truckload contract. Truck, truckload, there might be more mini bids or just you know uh, renegotiated sort of more throughout the year. So I think that's a lot of the intermodal sort of playing catch up there. And so um, you know after that you do see that that spread you know start to rise again. And um, you know, I think part of that's you know due to uh, the truckload contracts rolling over at higher rates and a lot of those intermodal contracts haven't yet been repriced higher and and, and also um you know could be related to the fact that that shippers just aren't seeing a lot of, of value there in their existing intermodal service so so why am i going to pay you know even more for for intermodal service if the I'm not seeing a lot of value at, at current rates yeah i guess you kind of just answered both my questions there precisely at the end the uh, the market is kind of dictating or the shippers are basically saying you know what i'll bid higher for the truckload moves, which I think it also is interesting to note that the contract rates for truckloads are a lot more fluid uh, than those intermodal contracts. And I think that's what we see traditionally uh, anyway. But I am a little shocked to see that there hasn't been as much movement, like no intermediate. Uh, do you think there's going to be any intermediate steps in this process? Or are you really thinking that the service value is just not there? I mean, I would think that the further up that green line gets, the more that is going to have pressure on that intermodal contract, right? Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's that's true. I mean, the other thing I, I would point out there is you're looking at national averages in that chart, and um, you know when you look at you know the the rates in individual segments, there's a tremendous difference between 
what's happening in the head hull lanes and the back hull lanes. I mean, we look at our sort of spot data just to get like kind of a flavor for, for, for what's happening. And, and, you know, there you see intermodal spot rates on the head hull lanes that are, you know, way over what a truckload rate would be because uh, inter- intermodal companies, you know, railroads trying to price themselves out of the business to protect capacity for the contracted shippers. But then in the backhaul lane, some of those are less than a dollar a mile. And so that that imbalance that you talked about earlier um, with more freight coming coming uh, east than going back west with, um, you know, uh, on the rail side, I mean, you're, you're really, you have lots of equipment to, to reposition, you know, back, gotcha. back west. And so you are sort of taking averages of, you know, some rates that are way higher year over year and some that are, are flat to maybe even down a little bit because of the, the imbalance uh, situation. And, and I don't think in the truckload side, even in some of the backhaul rates, you'd necessarily see rates that are completely flat with where they were, you know, a year or two ago or even, or even down like with, with intermodal. No, I think you made a good point. That's that's an interesting aspect of this that is kind of invisible in this chart is that push and pull of the backhaul and headhaul. Truckload rates, I, I believe, you know, I look normally at like Los Angeles to Dallas and Dallas to Los Angeles in the spot market to kind of get my perspective. The rate from Los Angeles to Dallas in the truckload market is up, in the spot market is up some astronom- astronomical number. It's like 30, 40% year over year, something like that. And the one going from Dallas to Los Angeles is up like, but it's only up like five, six <laughs> percent. So there's been a huge divergence, even though I don't think anybody's taking rate increases, decreases in the truckload market. And I, I'm almost kind of perplexed by this because of what you just said with the rail markets is the there's so much freight moving from west to east. How is that? How are truckload carriers able to, you know, incur rate increases going the other direction when it's very clear cut that there is a dramatic you know, imbalance there that, you know, I, I, there's just not enough freight. Like, and we're seeing this in markets like Los Angeles to Stockton, for instance, traditionally a very unbalanced market where you have way more freight going into Stockton than going into Los Angeles. Why do you think that is in the truckload space that we're seeing rate increases? Whereas in the rail, the more traditional space, we're seeing kind of what you would expect as imbalance occurs. Yeah, with a truck, it's still it, it's just really costly to reposition a truck. I think is the main thing. I mean, you, you still have to you know pay a driver. You still have to um, you know have you know, pay for the fuel and and certain amount of maintenance per mile. And so it's 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 just it's probably more more costly just to reposition that equipment, that capacity, you know, back back west. And so it's not like you can just really you know go back for you know, less than a dollar a mile and have that make any sense. You're going to lose too much, too much money, um, you know, going back, back out West. Um, whereas in the rail side, you're double stacking the containers, you're spreading those, those costs out over a large number of, of, of miles. I just think it's a little bit more just economic to reposition equipment uh, on the railroads. So Mike, while I have you here, I have to dive into your mind a little bit more. I always want to know what some of the brightest people are looking at going forward. So what are some areas that you're going to be watching closely? Are there any calls or any wild expectations that you have over the next year or so? But what are the things that you're watching um, in, the, in the coming quarter and going into 2022? Yeah, so I think one of the big questions here is, you know, we talk about how just absolutely on fire the economy is. You know, I think the one thing that could derail that is just inflation. I mean, we talk a lot about inflation too, but we're just now getting to the point where a lot of sort of the consumer products are, that are on shelves that people are going out and buying 
are at much higher prices that are, are you know, in some cases, you know, 5% higher, in some cases, 10% higher. In some cases, we're talking about like the meat that you're going to grill. Um, you know, those are up, you know, close to 20%. So, um, you know, you do wonder how much of that is ultimately going to cut into, uh, you know, people's budgets. And then, you know, we'll, we'll ultimately you know, display some of the spending uh, that you were talking about on the consumer side, you know, over the next year. I don't think that most people have really sort of felt that uh, price increase, you know, yet, um, because it does take some time for companies that are making consumer products to, to you know, raise their prices on the retailers for those prices to sort of uh, filter through to consumers. So I, you know, I do think that's maybe the one thing that could, um, you know, cause the freight market to be a little bit, uh, you know, looser. Yeah. Good thing with you. So Mike, we got to let you go, but you do a lot of things here at Freight Waves. Uh, give the, give the audience a quick shout out to all the little touch points that you have here and, uh, and how they can get in touch with you or engage with you if they need to. Sure. So I do a lot of market expert work, which is a lot of sort of custom research for um, you know some of our big uh, you know customers. We write re- reports on you know the things that they care about specifically. We go to sort of in depth um, you know and, and those custom reports. Uh, do the stock out newsletter on consumer packaged goods and supply chains that comes out twice uh, weekly. Do a, a CPG show called the Stock Out on Friday afternoon at three p.m. Eastern. Have right. Um, you know, the New York Shipping Exchange on this week. I have uh, the Consumer uh, Brands Association next week. And then a couple of weeks after that, I have talking to Plenty, which is a company that does vertical farming, uh, which should be which should be pretty interesting. And then do a lot of uh, writing for the Passport uh, you know, Research uh, Group as well. Yeah, you, you're, you're a man of many, many colors there. Thank you so much for coming on, uh, Mike. And have a great rest of your day. And thanks for the updates. You bet. See you guys. Man, so that was the I'm one. I'm tired listening to his list of everything he's I working mean, on right I mean, I just, yeah. yeah I think <laughs> we, we talked about this earlier. You told me something you were working on, and I got tired immediately. <laughs> and I mean, he's got to go and do his other 15 jobs. If yeah. you ever watched uh, the sketch show uh, In Living Color back in the day, mm-hmm. how many jobs you got? <laughs> <laughs> that's, what I, that's what I heard there. <laughs> it was, uh, I, only, I got 15 jobs. <laughs> Um, anyway, uh, moving forward, there's a ton of activity there or a, a lot to unpack mm-hmm. with the rail market right now. And uh, one of the more consistent questions that I get asked is when is the rail congestion? Like what's causing it? What's, you know, why is it, you know, is it going to go away anytime soon? And the answer I think is clearly, uh, no. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, there's all these infrastructural problems, uh, from port to rail, a warehouse management, et cetera. Like, and there's all these like inefficiencies there. And I think uh, moving forward, I think we're going to see some investment in this sector yeah. uh, over the next few years. Yeah, and, and one of those things, that, one of the points that you mentioned early on, it's not like a lot has changed. I mean, the no. infrastructure is there. So that investment can go really far because yeah. things are set. If you can make things more and more efficient, if you can drive down costs, if you can create value, I think that investment initiative is there. Whether freight is just going crazy like <laughs> yeah, it is right. right now or things subside. So that investment to make things more efficient can only help on both ends. Well, the rails like are they're the they're the, the, you know, colloquially like kind of the term we use is they're the old guy stocks. They're the ones that are just there and you want in your portfolio because yeah. they generate revenue and cash consistently. And they're just not going to change that much. Mm-hmm. But I think we we've seen that even in times like this, there's there's so much opportunity uh, there in terms of improving, uh, and not just 
You know, they can't go out and just buy a bunch of railroad yeah. and just plow through somebody's backyard. I guess they could, but they could. You can in China. I don't know. The government would uh, <laughs> let you do that here, as is evident by the way. That it's going to take a decade <laughs> to uh, close to get the deal. Yeah, to close the deal about. <laughs> Hey man, we want to go ten feet further this way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, 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 no. We don't know if that's you got to okay. consult all parties. We got to make sure that the you know these rail lines are not going to make prices go down or up. You know, a penny a, mm-hmm. a mile in any situation because that's that's too a uh, lack of competition. So Zach, we have debate economics. <laughs> we got to debate. We, we have a few. I got. So <laughs> the wonderful folks in the control room put mm-hmm. together a couple questions. I'm gonna need some answers here, Zach. Um, I'm going to give them to you, and they're going to be 100% there be, right. Should there be a 12-team college football playoff format? Absolutely. So, and I'm going to lay out my argument because we got a little bit of time here. Let's hear it's it. football season. So, 12-team, looking at the 14 playoff, mm-hmm. last year was abysmal. It was unwatchable football for me. <laughs> like, I couldn't stand, it was the same four teams that have been around, yada, 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 and there's, I think we have focused too much of the energy in like a concentrated group of people because now everybody's season mm-hmm. is dependent on whether or not they get in this final four. Yeah. And then everybody else loses. Like the bowl games have been diluted. We need a, we need a way to bring more people in. It's like when they do the playoff expansion in baseball, mm-hmm. NFL, everybody's done this. Mm-hmm. You expand NBA, you expand the playoffs, you get a ton more interest. Now the argument against it is going to be you're going to dilute the regular season. There are 12 games in a season. Yeah, dilute them. There are 12 games. You're, there's not much more to dilute. And so, that's, that's where I'm at. <laughs> all right, I'll take that one. Next one. Who is or which actor is the best James Bond? Oh, man. You took me. Uh, I'm going to go with Sean Connery. <laughs> Respectable answer. Yeah, I mean, the OG. Like, how can you go wrong with that? Isaiah Buchanan, thanks for that one. And yeah. Frazier, good game. Um, last one. Who wins in a fight, Avengers or Justice League? Just straight up fight, not movies. Uh, Avengers. No. Yeah. Justice League. Avengers, dude. I mean, I enjoy the Avengers more. Yeah. But Superman, as overrated as he is, crazy. Captain Marvel trumps Superman. Martian Manhunter might even get on Superman's level. Those are two powerhouses that will wipe out, I I think, at least three quarters of the uh, Avengers. I just, I I mean, I, I... no. Movies are better. Hulk is my favorite. Movies are better. Yeah. Now movies that's are better. the debate. That's the debate. Thank you guys for watching and putting up with no, our the nonsense. No, the Marvel movies are better. <laughs> download the Freightwaves TV app. Of course, enjoy us on LinkedIn and everything else. Download our other podcast on Freight uh, Freightcast. Freight Quarter Guys with the truck. Yeah. Drink more water. Week. Don't worry about that water. Drink more water. Have we'll see you tea. next time. Sweet tea. Lemonade. Thank you.